Beyond the Ranch with Jay Gannon from Find the Ranch. Welcome back to another edition of Beyond the Wrench. I am your host, Jay Gedinen, and today's episode, we're going to dive into why techs are leaving the industry. Uh, A really cool show that I will share a little bit more about. But before we do that, I did want to talk about the winner of our higher or lower game for last week, which was Logan Borden. Logan scored 33 on the higher or lower game. Respectable score. Very cool. Unfortunately, he did not turn over the Queen of Hearts, so the pot increases to $1,400. Logan doesn't go away empty-handed, though, as he wins our weekly $100 gift card, which was sponsored this week by Diesel Laptops. A really, really good partner of ours. Good, good people and doing a lot of good for the industry as a whole. One other thing to mention is our Wrenchway app. The Wrenchway app helps technicians in the automotive, diesel, and heavy equipment industries by making it easier to search for jobs, highlighting the best shops to work at, and gathering feedback and ideas on how the industry can be improved. The app is completely free to use and can be downloaded in the App Store or on Google Play. We've included a link in the show notes with more information. Now, as far as this week's episode, we get to talk with a couple of of technicians, Kevin and Ryan, who you'll meet throughout the podcast, that started their careers out together. And the interesting part was they actually split into different sides uh, or really kind of went different ways with their careers. One stayed in the industry, found a shop that's treating him really, really well. The other left the industry because uh, he didn't feel that there were uh, a lot of good opportunities out there. And as you'll see in his experience, I think it's somebody that that we really, really want in this industry, right? So being able to kind of play out the good, the bad, the ugly in their experiences, and and hopefully what we can do is take a lot from this and, and learn and learn to listen to these technicians because they've got a, re- a lot of really, really good insight and things that we can learn from. And uh, ultimately, I think this is just a great podcast for that. So enjoy the show. Let us know what you think and look forward to hearing thoughts and and everything from this one in general. So have a great day. Enjoy the podcast and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Really excited to have uh, a couple of guys that I've really enjoyed their stories. And as I kind of mentioned in the end, I think gives unique perspective to employers to understand what it is that technicians are looking for. So I've got with me Kevin Bednarik. I, I think we just got correct pronunciation on the name, so I, hopefully I got that right. And Ryan Winfeld. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you? Great. Good. Well, this is uh, this is kind of unique, and, and we'll dive into the actual podcast and, and kind of the, the contents of it. But before we do that, I, I just want to get a brief history from both of you and and kind of where you're at today and what led you there. So Kevin, why don't you lead the way? Yeah. So I moved out to California in high school. And that's kind of where I got hooked into cars, went to UTI out there. And as soon as I finished UTI, my whole family ended up moving back out of California. But I got a job at Toyota originally. And went there for about a month or two and realized I did not like it. I <laughs> bounced around for a couple different spots, but I ended up finding myself at Audi that I was there for 
about three and a half, four years. And after that, I, for various reasons, moved to a Mercedes dealership. And that was uh, the end of 2019. And 2020 rolled around right about March time. Everybody (laughs) got laid off. So I found myself unemployed with a ton of time on my hands. And I had done some uh, programming before, but decided to pick it back up again. And I taught myself how to code. And after that, we all went back to work, but kept thinking about it. And so just kind of worked on some personal projects and stuff like that. And now I am a software engineer. All right. And where in California did you live? Right in Orange County in Irvine. All right. All right. Ryan, how about a little bit of your story? So I started back in high school or just out of high school, worked at a Valvoline, not really as a career plan, just as kind of a job. You know, liked it well enough and good. I've been into cars since I was about three. So, you know, it was just, (laughs) it was a job that I could have as a high schooler type thing that didn't require a lot of training. I actually did. I was originally planning on becoming an engineer, started in a four-year college. Turns out I'm not actually that great at math. So the engineering thing didn't really work out. So ended up, you know, I left the four-year school and I uh, was basically looking for something to do. And I picked up a job just at a chain tire shop. It was a Sears Automotive Center and they don't even exist anymore. But, you know, just again, kind of did that as a job, but it was still a little more involved than just changing oil at, you know, a quick loop place. It was more actually working on cars. It was my first introduction to flat rate and all that, but did fairly well there and decided that I was actually going to make a go of it as a career. So went to uh, technical school. I went to uh, Dunwoody uh, technical college in Minneapolis. Sure. Did well there, really enjoyed it. Uh, got a job actually. I was offered a full time position one semester into my second year. So I was actually juggling that. And I took my final two semesters at a dealership. I got hired at a Volkswagen dealership as a light duty technician and just kind of made that uh, transition basically immediately. I mean, it was as seamless as it could be. And then I worked at the VW dealership for about six years. I was basically informed of an opening at an Audi dealership in town, paid more, was, you know, more prestige dealership as well. So just kind of thought of it as a, you know, just a career step up and transferred to an Audi dealership and then spent about five years there and kind of got, you know, a little worn out on the dealership side, but took another job in the automotive industry now at another dealership group doing uh, reconditioning work. They've got a full reconditioning center, uh, but it was actually a pay bump to go over there and it was no longer flat rate. And I was interested to see what working on cars for a living by the hour was like. So decided to give it a shot. And I've been there for about two and a half months now and it's been going well so far. Good. That is my story. I love it. And the connection is that you two work together at, at a dealership, right? Yes. At yeah. the Audi dealership. Yeah, I think, yeah, Ryan started, what, a couple months after I did? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so that leads us to the the actual conversation, which I think is a really unique one. And, and as Kevin mentioned, he's no longer in the industry. And this is something that we're seeing more and more out of technicians in general is maybe looking for opportunities outside of our industry. And what's cool about this is I think we were able to really talk with both of them and get Ryan's story on how his dealership has really, you know, stepped up their game a little bit and treated him well. And and I think this is a really vital conversation to have because it is the tale of two paths, two people, two technicians that were at the same dealership at the same time, one of one of which is still in the industry, the other's gone, right? And and I think there's a lot to be learned out of that. And and so I want to start with with really that kind of piece and and really kind of at the base of it, how did how did you guys even get into this? I, it sounds like neither one of you had a, a family background in automotive, right? None whatsoever. Yep. Nope. Uh, in fact, I think it was my dad told me not to work on cars. I'm not <laughs> Because it was it was a hobby. I picked it up like when I was in California. When I first moved out there, I bought an 01 A4, and I thought I was the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> I'm driving a European car now. I did go to high school with a guy who drove a Ferrari, so my car was still kind of a turd. But either way, it was. Uh, he was just like, "You're not going to like it if it's a hobby. It's not going to be good." And for me, that was true. I still have worked with people who loved working on cars and they still love it. But yeah, I kind of started and then yeah, my hobby slowly dropped off. So uh, that may have been kind of where I got the bad taste in my mouth, but I feel like I've, I stuck it out for a good number of years and yeah, eventually it just kind of grew to a head and just didn't want to do it anymore. So what, what started your interest in it in the first place? I know Ryan, you said that you, you became interested at a really young age and yeah, literally just- like my very first childhood toy was a car and it just has been ever since so like uh, the power wheels and that kind of stuff yes kind of although i will say that my interest has always been more on the driving side than on the wrenching side the wrenching side has always been kind of a you know a necessary evil i guess because sure. what i actually want to do i've been into performance driving as long or since I could drive a cart and, you know, raced that whenever I could. Didn't have much in the way of like motorized toys. Just, I mean, we lived in the suburbs, you know, there wasn't, <laughs> we didn't have acreage or whatever to drive dirt bikes on or whatever, but, you know, wherever I could drive, I would. And then, you know, when I was actually able to get my own vehicle, you know, I got into you know, the high performance driving closed course stuff as soon as I could. And then, you know, unless you've got, you know, backing and whatnot, if you want to do that, you have to work on your own stuff. It's just part of it. So that's kind of, I mean, I got into working on cars from the uh, kind of the enthusiast side and I've just been, European cars have always been my thing. A buddy of mine in high school got a, 93 S4 when we were in high school. And, you know, that was kind of my first exposure to European cars. And I really liked it and helping him work on it and all that. So that's kind of what led me to the European side of things. But yeah, just the, uh, it was more like the driving, like I said, and the 
the wrenching on it because I had to, yeah. uh, to keep the stuff working because you're racing, obviously stuff breaks, stuff wears out at a much higher rate than it would otherwise. So unless, like I said, you've got back and you have to figure out how to do that yourself. So just sometimes a blessing in disguise. And yes, how I'm curious as to the approach if you both take yourselves back to when you start, first started getting involved with cars and you're talking European cars, how, how do you afford to be able to, to even tear into these things, right? <clears throat> say say you're 16 years old, 17 years old, and you're looking at that, that engine and you're like, oh man, if I take this apart and I don't put it back together... I can't drive to school. <laughs> so pretty much like, it, like yeah. how was it was it intimidating at all or was it like hey, you know what? I'm just going to dig in and try to figure it out. I was uh super scary cuz that yeah, the Audi was like my first my first car that I started tinkering with and yeah, I, there were a couple of things that broke on it that my parents were just like, yeah, well, you wanted to buy this stupid European car. We're not going to help you fix it. Good luck. And yeah. so I was like, huh, I bet YouTube might know something. So yeah, I mean, it was just YouTube rabbit holes and then just a lot of planning, just like, okay, I've got all my parts. I've watched 10 videos on how to do this. We're going to just give it a go in a weekend. But I mean, yeah, that's, I, I mean, I learned how to work on cars on YouTube before I went to school. So same with you, Ryan. I sidestepped that situation by mainly doing work on other people's cars and not not screwing around with my daily drive. I did have to ride the bus a couple times, but you know, <laughs> mainly helping friends, especially on bigger projects and that sort of stuff, you know. <laughs> so kind of so, avoiding the whole uh, so like Mrs. Jones down the road was just like, hey, go change my brakes. No, it was more like other people that were into cars and they got themselves in over their head and, you know, were like, hey, I'm doing this and I don't really know what I'm doing. And you like cars, like you want to come look at it? <laughs> kind of learning that way. You know, that's actually, I think, the best way to do a project is to just have somebody else pay for it. Well, and I think you're both in both cases. What I what I love about the two of you is that you dove headfirst, right? Like you just kind of went after it and then learned as you were going. And I think and this is my observation with good technicians, but the ones that are really good have that innate ability to to be able to want to learn or want mm -hmm. to like to solve a problem. Is that something you get? Yeah, that for sure. I mean, there are a lot of people there, like I've worked with a lot of people that seem to need a lot of hand holding. And yeah, I mean, I mean, as much as I didn't want to be at work, there were a lot of people that felt the same way, but the difference was like, well, it, the problem's not going to go away. I can't just like give up. I just like have to figure it out because <laughs> I need to eat today and stuff. <laughs> so that's pretty big. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I get it. There are like lots of days I didn't want to turn many hours and then I'd kick myself for it later. But it's like at, for the most part, it's like, I just needed to figure it out. And at the same time, I mean, I do enjoy learning. I do enjoy figuring stuff out. I'm kind of a, I, I really like the efficiency standpoint of it. And I like that about the flat rate system, but it, I mean, 
works on paper. It always sounds good. You just like work a little harder if you want more money, but not really how it works. But that was kind of my thing is just like, okay, cool. I struggled through it this time. And then I just made notes in my head, just like, how can I do this better next time? What can I learn from this? And that's usually just how I approach things. Yeah. I, I, I think just for me, that's what makes people in our industry so appealing to other industries, right? Is that if you're a good technician and you've been around for a while, you've probably had to, to do a lot of critical thinking. This isn't an easy job. And for those that understand how a technician works, there is so much critical thinking that goes into it that, you know, it, I'm sure, Kevin, you're starting to maybe see this on the, the coding side or, you know, there's a variety of different industries and positions where, you know, maybe they don't, I don't want to say they don't have to critically think as much, but the reason why technicians are appealing is because they know that if you're doing that position, you've probably had to think through a problem, put together a plan and be able to to kind of fix it. Right. And, and a lot of times that's with duct tape and trying to get something out the door, but it, not with customer cars, but more so specifically talking back to when you were a kid and trying to get your daily driver up and running by any means possible. When when you look at that, and and Kevin, this kind of segues nicely into your your transition, right? So for those of the folks that are out there that might not understand what it is that you're about to venture into in your new 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 career, why don't you give us a little a little idea of what that is? Like I think people hear software engineer and they're like, I, I, they code and they do this, but like, what is it that you you'll be doing? Sitting in a lot of meetings, it's yeah, I mean. So just like fixing problems, I mean, that's, that's literally what you do. You just get like assigned a task and something you like for say web development, which is a lot of what I've done too. It's, you just get assigned a task really, and they just want it done. And me, they're like working with technologies I've never used. It's just like, I have, (laughs) I have no idea what that means, but it's just like, they, the big thing they want you to do is just like know how to figure it out. They don't care if you don't know what they're using, just learn it and figure it out. And that's where I think the skills really translate. But yeah, I mean, you just, I mean, it does all start with code. So you just got to know a couple different languages and pick out some projects and sucker somebody into hiring you, I guess. But yeah, you make it sound so easy. Yeah, just learn a couple different languages. It, it's almost as foreign as actually learning like Spanish. Like it, well, it is. Yeah, I mean, kind of, except the Internet is so huge and it is so there's so many resources and so many things like to look at. I, I mean, I don't know. In my perspective, before I started coding, like I had some friends who did it. And I was just like, well, you need a college degree. You need to know this, this, and this. You got to be good at math or something. I have been to a couple different colleges, failed out all of them other than UTI, which I did finish. But I mean, you don't need a degree and that stuff. And I think that was just like a big motivator for me is like somebody to break it down be like, they're not, they're not special. I'm not special. I can... I'm just like anyone else. And it's just like picking up anything else, but you do have to have that desire to learn. So also realizing that programming is half Google searching. Oh yeah. I just, <laughs> that's how, 
like literally they're like what's wrong with this and be like i i don't know i just googled it better than you i guess i don't know <laughs> see there are a lot of similarities between literally like the entire <laughs> microsoft like c plus plus library is available if you have a question on coding in c you can go out to microsoft's website it'll give you every piece of code that they have how to use it what yep. it's for I mean, that's like a use cases you just need to know how to search it which is really exactly like i mean or not exactly i mean pretty darn similar to looking up service information for a car yeah 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 oh go ahead kevin do you have something else oh i was gonna say yeah that's exactly it for any language really i mean they've got documentation that gets written first it's just figuring out how to look stuff up. And that's what I'd been doing in the automotive industry for a ton of years. And you just eventually don't need the handholding. And if you're willing to like figure it out, then if you've got the information, it's just about looking it up. But So I'm going to stick with you here for, for just a little bit, Kevin. And then we're going to kind of build off of that, Ryan, on in terms of like what that means to the automotive side and, and really maybe what your experience was. Because I, I did – I really enjoyed what Ryan had to say in, in prior conversations about uh, people in the industry listening and how impactful it is when somebody does. Now, Kevin, on your side – there had to have been something in your mind prior to this to, to thinking like, okay, maybe there's something outside of automotive that like might, might be tempting or might be a, a different career path. Where, how seriously were you thinking of it, say, two years before you left the industry? Oh, I was probably thinking about it. Well, I, before I left, it was probably maybe good two and a half years or so. I was on at Audi. They had this night shift. So when I started at Audi, I was light duty because I really hadn't held any like meaningful positions in the automotive industry before that. So they took me on as light duty and that was fine. It's a lot of talk like, oh yeah, we're going to move you up. We're going to move you up. And I'm like, okay, great. Sure. And I was already doing all of the work, the other, the full journeyman technicians, but just not getting paid like it. And I was getting pretty irritated. And I feel like, I mean, that was kind of management styles. You just hold out as long as you can. But uh, then they were like, okay, we've got this night shift thing that they're going to go. They they say, we're so busy. We're going to make a night shift and have two shifts. So I had to work from three to 11 or three to whenever, because that was a thing. A lot of times there weren't cars to work on at night because you'd need to, they had two, two of the more senior guys doing diagnosis work. And it, a lot of it was like, I've diagnosed this 35,000 mile maintenance for you. Here you go. <laughs> a lot of wheel bearing diagnoses. <laughs> a lot of wheel. It's just like stuff that anyone can, it, it like wasn't difficult. And so that's kind of where it was pretty lame. Cause they're like, it's a learning opportunity too. It's like, well, I don't, if I'm not, if I'm wor- working at night alone, like there's no learning going on here. It's just flailing. And I, you, I feel you, like you. That, you learned that you didn't like to work nights. I certainly did. But after asking, they're like, no, we don't have any positions on days. Sorry, you can't move to days. But a lot of that flailing alone had really helped me look up stuff. I mean, you just get really good when there's literally nobody to ask because it's just you and two other people who are in the same boat as you 
you just get really good at looking stuff up. But yeah, so anyway, after asking and asking about getting off of nights because it was awful, they were just like, nope, there's nothing we can do. So I, I looked elsewhere, saw that Mercedes is hiring. I, I remember it being one night, had a couple drinks because the day sucked. And then kind of drunkenly throwing in an application to Mercedes. And then like the next morning, getting a phone call, like, how soon can you come in? And went in the next day, got an offer on the spot. And I was like, that sounds great. No nights. It pays like the pay scale I was at. It was like a $10 an hour bump for our highest bumps. It was, wow. it was gnarly. But there are a lot of questions I did not ask in that interview and hindsight's 2020, but yeah, a what lot of questions. questions do, what questions do you wish you would have? I, I felt like I did ask a ton, like what's the work like, how this, but what I found is the service manager is kind of blowing a lot of smoke and he's just like, oh yeah, everyone's banging crazy hours. Everyone makes tons of money, but some stuff I didn't ask, like what's the heavy duty and light duty split? Cause they had light duty pay at the time. It's like, what's that split? What kind of stuff is considered light duty? And when you realize that most things are light duty and on top of your highest bump, that's a $10 an hour pay cut. And I'm like, well, I'm not making any more than I was. So that was a bit of a bummer. But did you, did you feel like it wasn't an accurate reflection of what they sold you? Well, yeah, there, that I feel like the technician shortage has gotten people into some, I mean, management I mean, the interview was more him selling himself to me. Yeah. All The only question he asked is like, do you think you can do the job? And I was like, yeah, I do the job. And he's like, <laughs> awesome. And then he went back to like selling the dealership to me. And just because I feel like the industry is hurting for work, but I don't want that to lead into them selling too hard with, I mean, I, I wouldn't say he was lying, but and yeah, some people did make crazy hours and I, yeah, that we had some great weeks, but there was a lot of stuff that wasn't uh, portrayed real accurately. Yeah. Oh, and I, I oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Ryan. I'd love to hear what you have to say here. I was just going to say that actually almost exactly mirrors my interview with Howdy all the way down to people are busting tons of hours. Like here's an hour sheet of everybody like, oh yeah, like look at all these hours that people are turning. And just kind of quick mentioned light duty pay and passing and that, you know, just mentioned it as like things like breaks and whatnot. And it's like, oh, that's actually, you know, a much larger percentage of your work. And I don't, Kevin at the time at Audi was a light duty technician. So I don't think he experienced the heavy duty, light duty split at Audi as much, but it, there was plenty of weeks that me as a like a senior heavy line technician would be getting 60% of my hours being light duty. And again, that was a $10 pay cut off your top line pump. So it's a big deal. What's the difference? Like, so like a it's a local thing here. Okay. It's a local, it, it was part of a, one of the union CBAs, which Audi wasn't even a union shop, but they just kind of followed along. But basically, the dealers said, hey, we are going to compete with independents and tire shops and stuff like that on things like 
oil changes, tires, brakes, alignments, all that stuff that, you know, brings work in, but lots of people are doing, so there's a lot of competition in that space. They went in the union negotiations at the time and said, hey, you know, we can't pay you guys, you know, journeyman dealer rates to do this when, you know, Joe Blow's tire shop down the street is paying somebody $10 an hour to change tires. We can't pay you $35 an hour to change tires. So it's kind of a race to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So they introduced light duty for things like tires and brakes. And then it expanded to things like axles and shocks and suspension and alignments and all that stuff. You know, the list gets bigger. And the original deal was we're paying you guys light duty. Also, we're lowering the door rate so we can compete with Joe Blow's tire shop. You know, so the customer labor rate got slashed and your pay got cut as well just to try and keep people in the door. Well, you know, sure, time goes along and they're now charging full door rate for all that stuff and still paying, you know, a $10 cut. Ah. It's like, huh, you know, that's going somewhere and it's not in my pocket and I'm still doing the same work. <laughs> well, that it sounds like they were trying to match it to like effective labor rate, right? Like, so if you're putting all of the jobs into one labor rate and, you know, it's total labor sold divided by the total hours that you, that are worked, like obviously the maintenance type of items really bring your effective labor rate down. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that's what they're, they're trying. I'm assuming that's what they were trying to get to is like, that was the initial, yeah, that was the initial, you know, the initial like impetus for it is, you know, we're not going to like, we can't charge whatever our door rate is, you know, 150, $200 an hour to do an oil change when, you know, the, quick loop down the street charges 10 whole dollars in labor to do an oil change you know you'd never get people on the door which is totally understandable you know i do get that that is you know if it's an unskilled or quote unskilled job you know right if you are still trying to compete to drive because you know no one makes money on oil changes but oil changes are what keep people coming back and that's and the same thing with like tires nobody makes money on tires but if you can keep a person coming to the dealership especially for their regular maintenance their tires that sort of stuff keep that in their mind when something does go wrong or you need something larger that's the place that they think of that's totally understandable but you know that's also why dealerships generally have quick loop technicians that are getting paid roughly the same as, you know, Joe Blow's tire shop down the street. And, you know, the dealership can take a bath on the oil change labor because they're paying somebody 10 or 12 bucks an hour to do it. But when you're then asking your line technicians to take that same bath, you know, somebody that's gone to tech school, been in the industry for years, has $40,000 invested in tools, and then the double whammy of charging full door rate for that gets a little irritating. Which I could see the frustration on the technician side, right? Because if if 
you understand it at first, right? Like when, when you're going and you, you've got to compete with, with the local shops on, on maintenance items. But then when that goes back the other way, there's just no word out to the technicians to say, hey, we're raising the labor rate. Like, is it more of just like a, hey, look over there. Like, we're going to raise the labor rate. And, they just never uh, even said anything. It was just never even a conversation. And that's what causes distrust in our industry. I mean, like that stuff right there is mm-hmm. so damning. I mean, that is, I, you've got to know that you've got to have that conversation with your techs at some point. And that's, I think that's where some of the, the frustration from techs comes in is that, yeah, you know, everybody's promoting that you need us so bad. But then when, when you do something like that, it just, it hurts so much because you just don't understand. And you, for, I, how, let me ask you this, and and Ryan, this goes to you. But did you feel like you could go talk to somebody about it? Like, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the only person to talk to was the person that was implementing it. Yeah, and I mean, Ryan, didn't you make a mention of how much the labor rate went up in your tenure there versus how much your pay went up? Oh yeah, the labor rate started at just north of $160 when I started per hour door rate. And when I left, it was just shy of $200 door rate. So went up almost $40. And uh, the technician pay in that amount of time went up $1 per hour. And it went from $160 with a light duty rate of $100 an hour to $200 with no light duty rate. With a $1 per hour increase... And that's mm-hmm. on flat. That's on flat rate dollars. Yep. Yeah, but they just—they just all they would do is they just Im- incremented the scale up. It was like twenty-five cents a year or thirty cents a year or whatever. And the flat, the light duty flat rate never went up. Did they? And this could go for any any dealership that you ever worked at. But did any of them sit down and like talk with you about kind of the numbers behind? what the labor rate is like. So when I say that one of the most impactful presentations I ever saw was from a general manager that sat down and literally just broke down each line item of like, okay, this is how we get to the labor rate. This is, you know, this is salaries, this is expenses, you know, we got to keep the lights on. So here's the electric bill, you know, like all of that stuff. Did you ever in, in your experiences? Oh, yeah. We had a, we had an all hands meeting every quarter and every quarter it was, we made, we beat our plan by 40%. You know, we're making all this money. This is great. We've made more money than we've ever made before, which when your pay isn't Doesn't going up. Doesn't reflect that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. My, my final week there, we had a, this is literally the week before I turned in my notice. It was one of those meetings and it was, they had everybody in from the dealer group and whatever, and they were congratulating how much, we had bounced back from COVID. We had bounced back from 2020. We were making, you know, 80% more than last year, 30% more than planned. It was so great. You know, because of all that, they were able to build an entirely new dealership and get a new franchise in. Like, <laughs> cool. So are these... That means absolutely nothing to me. Right. Are you, are were these experiences, are these all union shops or not union shops? Audi was not a union shop. Okay. I was, uh, then when I went to Mercedes, I did go to a union shop and that actually 
came into play a couple of times, which was interesting. What do you mean? Like another thing, like where the service manager never told anybody, just likes to do stuff like at get rid of the light duty door rate is one. So we had, it was, we, how was it? So we had uh, our alignments. We had a big scuffle over alignments for a long, long time. And when I got there, they, Mercedes had an alignment, like it's a steering rack bolt recall where you needed to do an alignment. And uh, so tons of cars coming in, needing alignments. And with that being said, people were looking at their paychecks and they were like, yo, what's going on here? My union handbook says alignments are supposed to pay heavy duty rate and everyone is getting paid light duty rate for them. So that was a big thing. We went to, that was right around the time of uh, COVID was starting so we had like a meeting on Tuesday, I think it was, where every like places were shutting down and he, the general manager came out and he's like, we've never laid anyone off. Don't worry about it. Nobody's getting laid off. I think there was the next day somebody found out about getting paid incorrectly on their alignments. And then we were all owed back pay. We brought it to the union. The union brought it up to management. They're like, okay, we'll give you your back pay. And then the next day, everyone got laid off. <laughs> so that was super cool. I mean, not saying correlation proves causation, but it, it was pretty <laughs> suspicious. But when we all got back, we had another thing because they obviously lost that whole alignment thing. I feel like they were pretty bitter about it. Alignments paid 2.2 hours. And then casually at the end of one of our shop meetings, he was like, oh, by the way, alignments are now going to pay one four. And everyone was like, yes, what? (laughs) And so again, brought it up with the union. Apparently we need to be given a year's written notice. And so they didn't do anything about it. They're like, is this really the road you guys want to go down after last time? Says the union steward. Everyone's like, yes, yes, we do. So yeah, that got squashed. But I mean, that was kind of the whole theme of my time there is just like management skirting the union. So do you, how much of an impact do you think the union had on it? Like, and in, in this is something where I'm, I'm not overly familiar with unions. I know enough about them, but I don't, I wouldn't call my expert, myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination. Like, give me an idea of how that relationship works. And, and more so just for me and maybe for a lot of those other shops out there that don't know what that union relationship looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, you, it, the union comes at the cost. You have to pay your union dues, which I think was like, I don't know, it was like 60 bucks a month or something like that it comes out of one of your paychecks. And uh, so you, you forget about that pretty quick, but it's, but essentially, yeah, you do have that whole plan in place when you get stuff like that, where you've got a union contract and that the union dictates what things pay. Like these things are considered heavy duty. These things are considered light duty in our union where we had that. And they, everyone, unlike Audi, where I got paid peanuts, well, people were getting paid tons, even though they didn't do a whole lot per hour, that is. They, the union just said, everyone gets paid this as a journeyman. So that was kind of nice. It was kind of a bummer for probably people who've been there for years and years and years, but it's nice for me just joining in. But so, but I feel like with that, there's like some transparency. There was never any 
like, I don't know, I had been publicly yelled at once at Audi, probably more than once, actually, because like I brought up pay and I was like, yo, this is kind of messed up. And then, yeah, it just turned into me getting screamed at in front of the shop. But you do get that backstop with the union when, you know, management decides to just change something and you can be like, no, that's actually not how it's yeah. so going to be rather than just this is how it is and this is how it is. Yeah. So with the union, I mean, it, it worked out. At least I saw the union in action uh, a couple times, which was nice because like I didn't know what my money was going towards. But uh, there was lots of things. And that's just the stuff that I had direct involvement with. I was pretty close to the union steward anyway, and he was retiring. And actually, he retired about a week after I left. And there was a few people that wanted me to take the union steward spot because I liked reading the book. And because, I mean, it, it just sucks, though, when when management is constantly skirt doing everything they can to skirt the union, it's like no, we, we pay this money to be in a union for a reason. And I feel like we, we tended to use it, which was nice because it felt like you actually had a voice a bit. Yeah. I, which I think is what all, all technicians are kind of craving for, right. Is just to have that voice in, you know, in that discussion or even to know that your, your light rate is going to go up. Like I, it's, to me, it's it's so much about hearing what we as technicians have to say, rather than just like, "Hey, we're joining the union and we're gonna we're gonna put it to the man." You know, like I I don't even know if it's all about that, right? And I think oh. at times from a from a company standpoint, there's there's a lot of where maybe they've been burned by something or they feel maybe slighted by the union in some level or you know whatever it might be, or maybe it just takes away some of their flexibility. And I think that's where there's some some level of of uh, you know almost like infighting right of like the the two sides going to war because it's just it feels like it's a constant negotiation right and yeah. you see it like John Deere just I think I think ten thousand workers at John Deere just went on strike in Iowa yeah. and so like you know I think there's there's some of that where it's just like it's such a feeling out process and I'm not sure either side really knows about like just trying to help each other rather than trying to fight against each other all the time. Well, the thing is too. So when we'd have management complain about the union, we'd say, we want something changed. They're like, Nope, this is what it says in the union contract. And they're like, we can't do anything. And I was like, that's where they would also use it against us where they're like, this is what it says in the union contract. But when it says, this is actually the minimum that you have to pay somebody and they're like, we don't want light duty pay. They'd be like, the union says you need it. They actually don't say you need it. They just say, if it's if you choose to implement it, this is what it pays. And they kept going back and forth. This is the only thing we can pay you. Right up until I left, there were probably, I think there were about four other people that also went, oh, you can leave. And so they did too. And just like that, everyone got more vacation because they were losing people left and right. Everyone got tons of vacation days because that's what everyone was complaining about. And they were like, no, this is what the union says. They dropped light duty pay. They said they couldn't do that before, but oh, miraculously they can. So, I mean, as far as union goes, I think it just sets, I think it's nice in some circumstances because it's a minimum. Nobody's saying you can't be flexible, 
but this is the minimum we're asking for. And I feel like when management gets all bent out of shape about people wanting to unionize, just like, no, I feel like we've been treated bad. We want to set some sort of standard. Feel free to retain employees by going above and beyond, but this is the minimum we need. So it's almost like a misperception from the I start. I think so. Because they, yeah. they think, and I think management thinks the unions are out to get them. And we don't, you can't do anything in a union to like seek out revenge on management. You can, <laughs> literally the only power we had is to stop them from screwing us. So it's like, we're not doing anything bad, but they just like didn't like that they couldn't get away with it right up until they lose a bunch of people. And then they're like, oh, that's crazy. We can go above and beyond. Yeah. And was this when I was looking at leaving. Yeah. I, I think there's there's so much value in, in what you just said there. And even over and above the statement about the unions, but more so about, you know, I, I think COVID taught a lot of businesses that it almost forced us to be flexible, right? Like that because of the change and and not being able, I don't know how it was by you guys, but like for us in Dane County, Wisconsin, it was basically you couldn't go anywhere, right? Like you were, it was, it was a pretty true lockdown other than like essential farmers and, you know, food workers and apparently us, but, but, you know, I think looking at that and everything that you just said, what I took out of that is that, Shops could get so much value in just listening and having open conversations and dialogue with a with a technician, right? And and Ryan, I think it 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 was something that really stuck out to me when when we had our first conversation. In that you found a place that that really started to listen to you. It feels like, anyways, right? Where you're getting more than just the the lip service of somebody saying that they're going to do stuff, but people that are actually doing stuff. And and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that kind of an accurate depiction of, of what you're seeing? At least in the brief time that I've been there, like I said, it's only been a couple months, but you know, definitely the management seems to, you know, want to get stuff done and wants to do whatever they can to help me get my job done and all that. So, you know, it is definitely nice. I can, you know, feel a little more heard. Yeah. So with that, you saw maybe some changes or, or I don't even know the right way to phrase this, but maybe some pivots from the dealership. And and the reason I ask this, even though you've only been there a couple of months, one of the, the things that I think you can really tell a lot by is the people that work there already, right? Like if if you're in talking to them, you can probably get the sense of what's BS and what's not BS, right? Like you can mm-hmm. get a, an idea uh, because they're going to tell you whether you want to hear it or not. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're going to tell you, right? Yeah, definitely. Though I will say there is some... Uh, grousing because the the whole in the reconditioning center they're trying to institute a little more professionalism it sounds like it was a little more laid back in uh, past years but you know i've worked in highline dealers basically my entire career so i'm all for that you know more documented processes and whatnot so i'm all for that but yeah there is definitely a little grousing it's not 
just you know you're kind of shopped on the road type stuff but you know they're also bringing i mean used cars are huge right now too so like right that's i don't know what the actual numbers are but i you know nobody can get new cars nobody's selling new cars because there's no new cars to sell right now so our used businesses through the roof and they're bringing in more varieties and more price points and all that so you know there's when you're running that sort of volume you do need processes in place and whatnot so i like i said i'm all for that so yeah and i i think that's something that i try to get across to technicians too is that getting more professional in you know i i always refer to Maybe you go out to a, a Facebook group and you're reading what technicians are writing out there. Or you go, you know, just go talk to technicians and you're like, oh, my goodness, we, we need to represent ourselves in a more professional manner because mm-hmm. we, want the, we want more respect. We want more money. We want, you know, we want people to listen to us. But in order for them to take us seriously, I almost feel like there's a little bit of, hey, you know what? We need to we need to get a little oh, bit yeah. more professional ourselves, right? I mean, all the way back in tech school, you know, all of my instructors at tech school, any test, any quiz, any whatever, spelling and punctuation counted. So, you know, and there was a lot of complaining about that, but you know, that was, you know, even you know, 12, 15 years ago, they were trying to pound that into your head, you know, if you want if you write up a repair order and your story is full of misspellings and poor punctuation and whatnot you've just undermined your entire diagnosis it doesn't matter if you're the best tech in the world all the customer sees at the end of the day is that RO and their car and you know if it looks like somebody with you know one and a half fingers typed up their RO or wrote down these notes and you know they can't make sense of it and you know it's whatever it reflects poorly on you whether or not the work was good or not yeah and i i think for us to take the next step in terms of technicians that's what's going to be required is really that professionalism whether it's in our appearance whether it's in the way that we type up an ro or the way we interact with a customer at the, when the time is needed you know whether to how we approach management right like i think that's such a, a critical thing and and when i was on the the other side of that more on the the management side of that that was one thing that i thought technicians and i would try to coach technicians through that is to say like somebody'd come slam my door open and say ah this is bullshit and like <laughs> you know like the the approach was so bad at times that I'm like, listen, if you just come in and you, you're just like, Hey, listen, this is, this is an issue. Like, let's, let's talk about it. Like that, that could have helped a lot. And I think that's one thing, one piece of advice I'd give to technicians out there is to, you know, make sure it doesn't build up into you to the point to where you're just going to go explode. Like make sure you have conversations with people, make sure that you're, you're holding up your end of the bargain, because I think that's so important and, and imperative to that relationship is to, you know, if it's just always a constant fight, it's just like a marriage, you know, you're, you're probably not going to make it long. But if you can kind of understand maybe what your weaknesses are, and this goes for both managers and for technicians, like understand what your weaknesses are, what your blind spots are, what you could do to be a better communicator. Listen, I think that 
that's the when I talk to technicians, you know, pay is the number one thing they talk about. Being respected and listened to is number two. And mm-hmm. I think if they really at their core, when you start to dig into a technician, that listening factor and really caring about what those technicians are thinking might be up there with pay or even above pay and just knowing. I honestly think they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Another I had is that's offer tools, maybe some soft skills courses. We actually did have some of that at Dunwoody. There was a whole communication course and all that. Yeah, that I... I, th- I feel like a lot of people are just, I mean, that could go for any industry really, but I feel like people are just kind of expected to just pick up soft skills on their own and mm-hmm. probably don't have like great role models. If people they're hanging out with or grew up with didn't have great soft skills. I mean, it's a skill like anything else that can be learned. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably more important than a lot of factors in any successful business just good soft skills. Yeah, I agree. Uh, just life skills, right? Like just, I mean, general life skills. And if you're not trained on them, it, it can be really challenging. I guess the the last thing, and we're already kind of up on our hour, believe it or not. One thing I, w- I would mention or ask is, uh, Kevin, I'm curious, like as you go build this this new skill set and as you, you know, you're, you're, you're really building on coding What's funny to me is you're you're going to be exactly what the automotive industry is looking for in like five years, right? Like because like that's that having that background and as we go electrified with a lot of uh, the vehicles and autonomy comes, autonomous cars come, that's going to be a really really big thing. Do you see a path back at some point? I mean, a couple of things. If they if we can get it to a point where you're treated well, like. I'm pretty new and I've already been treated extremely well. People just assume I'm competent. People assume I'm a good person where you get really pigeonholed as a tech. People think, I mean, you do one thing wrong. You forget to fill some washer fluid. People think you are an idiot and the rest of your work sucks. People just don't assume that in like other industries. And that's, that's been amazing already. And if the automotive industry can match Google's like $250,000 a year new grad offer, then hell yeah. <laughs> we might be a ways away from that. Yet, but yeah, no, I mean that. And I mean, obviously not everybody gets like, I, I don't work at Google. That'd be crazy. But yeah, it's, I think as long as like, I I don't have a problem with cars. I love cars and I'm really hoping me stepping away is going to bring back my hobby because I would love that. I've got a project car that's been sitting in my garage for years. Don't even want to look at it, but I'm hoping that'll, that'll come back. And, and if the automotive industry is changing and like, as evidence were like Ryan works now, it looks like places are trending that way. I wouldn't have a problem with it, but I mean, yeah, I, th- I think I mean, whether or not you get a job in coding, I think learning how to code is at least basic stuff. And I think that's going to be super valuable. I think it already is valuable. And if nothing else, you'll get an appreciation for a good and a horrible website. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I really appreciate the both of you joining me today and, and talking through some 
some things that I think can be really beneficial for, for a shop. I think there's a lot of things that you said and really good advice for technicians. And, you know, really, you see, for those of you listening out there, the two different paths that were taken. And, you know, they were both at the same dealership at the same time. And basically, you know, went kind of to a fork in the road and both went different ways. So, you know, I think there there's so much value in this episode and being able to to learn about everything that they've talked about. And at its core, it really comes down to listening and and being able to understand what your technicians are saying, having good relationships with your technicians, respecting them. And, you know, I think that fundamentally at the core is what's going to change a lot of this stuff is is really getting that good management in place, good leadership, and probably more so than management, good leadership, treating your people right and and wanting to see them grow. So I can't thank you guys enough for being on the show. I really, really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to, to following the rest of your careers along. I, I, I think, th- think this is pretty cool. Cool. Well, thanks thank for you. having me.